What do you, okay, I have another question about uh, really briefly, but I know it's a hard one. Um, in terms of emotional labor, I think a lot of people see your work. I see your work as doing some of this emotional labor to speak to the white people, specifically like white middle class, working class, what have you folks about about racism and mm. about having mm. some sort of class consciousness yeah. and about not um, seeing themselves as so separate from immigrants and people of color. Um, do you conceive of yourself at all in that light as like you are doing some emotional labor that let's say that 30 year old black woman cannot do um, because she will be discriminated against and or like has too much work on our hands. Well, when I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't leave this country until we get it right. That's the one of the number one thing that things that we have to get right. That the 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 privilege that I've been able to have being born white um, is has really um, soured me <laughs> on so many things, um, and I've not I've not appreciated it. I don't like I don't like the fact that I get to win simply because I have a certain pigmentation. Sure. Of my skin. But you use it. You use that privilege, I think, to speak to folks who might other not otherwise hear from someone like I, AOC. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I hope so. I, yes, that is exactly what I want to do all the time. And in fact, when Iron Man, spoiler alert, in the last <laughs> Avengers uh, passed away. So there's an opening in the Avengers. And so I want to go meet They're hiring. The, the Rosso brothers. And I want to sit now. I, I want to be I want them to hire me. As one of the Avengers, I don't have a name yet uh, for for my my Avenger name, but what I want my role to be is is that I've been sent to Earth to remove the white people from power, <laughs> not hurt them, no violence, just okay. You've run things now for a few thousand years. What do you do? You just you just hold their hands, Michael. That's all you do. This superhero yes. doesn't do anything. He doesn't. He just takes their it's hands. It's gonna says, be okay. Come on, buddy. Uh, you know, Come we're not going to let you go to the way of the dinosaurs where they just like went extinct, but you've run the show long enough that we're going to let other people run it. We're going to uh, let uh, people that are not white. We're going to let women. We're going to have other people running the show. And let's just see what kind of job uh, they'll do. Come to the re-education camp. We're going to watch the color purple. There you go. It'll be great. And you're going to watch men kissing men for at least an hour a day. Sorry. Yeah. It, but that's just it might be kind of hot. You, at some point, I swear to God. <laughs> I don't know when that point is yet because I, I have I'm not there. I've watched hours and hours. But it's it's got to happen. Michael's got to go. He's got to go watch two men kissing yeah, right. until he finds it. Right. I'm off to my I'm off to my male kissing class and uh, and this is the reeducation. I love it. I'm here today on Rumble with Michael Moore, uh, with a, a, a special guest uh, that I've uh, wanted to have be part of our inaugural month of Rumble uh, here. And um, that's because she, um, when I uh, first, um, Roger and Me, my first film, came out 30 years ago this month. And uh, I took a lot of... <laughs> The public liked it a lot. It was uh, it became the largest grossing documentary of all time at that time. But the old guard of news and documentaries, they did not like using humor. Mm -hmm. And I'm with uh, today uh, Francesca Fiorentini, who um, 
does this and does it wonderfully in terms of discussing politics, what's going on in the world, and using humor. And by now, I thought there would have been a thousand of you. And there's like three of you, maybe. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. Oh, my gosh. Michael Moore, the political Nostradamus of America. My, 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 I don't know, my inspiration. The, what else can I say? You, I, I've loved you for so long. I can't believe I'm sitting here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's kind of you to say that. I, uh, but probably at some point uh, in your childhood, whenever you first encountered, you know, my work, something, something got uh, triggered, I guess. That's <laughs> a different kind of word today, I guess. But, but really, um, you must have always been a funny kid. Uh, wow, thank you. Yes. What would your parents say if they were listening to this right now? Oh God, my mom would. <laughs> my mom would be like, "I don't like your makeup right now." That's probably what she'd say. Uh, no, <laughs> my, no, I. Uh, you know, I was. I got yes, I got the superlatives in middle school and high school of funniest, best, best sense of humor. Um, I definitely. Uh, had a strong sense of justice and comedy since I was little, and that usually meant getting mad at the art teacher for making us grade one another's projects that we had to find all the materials for ourselves as if our parents had all the money and time to help us with. You know, those kinds of small injustices that as a child... But somewhere this led you to, you started... uh, uh, Well, you can explain your past past, but what the way that I know you now in the last year, I started following you on Instagram and I just thought, Oh my God, here is somebody who is hilarious. Um, and, uh, wants to talk about what's going on in the world. And that, um, somewhere led to you, uh, having a show on AJ plus, by the way, that's Al Jazeera plus. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) That's in the Middle East. You've heard of that area. <laughs> now, now we just say AJ. Yeah, AJ, AJ plus. plus. Yeah. And, but you have a show on there called News Broke, uh, which is your satirical kind of take and look at the world and news in general, and also of news media in general, which is has a lot to, that can be said satirically about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And now you've just had um, what I will assume is a pilot that they've just aired Uh, recently on MSNBC. It was on a Sunday night. It was called Red, White, and Who. Mm -hmm. And and I I started thinking, wow, I hope this isn't just a one-time thing that are they going to actually turn over some real estate to you on MSNBC? And I mean, listen, Michael, you got to twist some arms over there. I know you run things at MSNBC. I am the, so pup- I am the puppet master you're the puppet at MSNBC. Master. And uh, they, they uh, yes, yes, so you could tell it uh, right all it's the way through the night. Is, yes, yes. It's all been this long game, the long con to get you to be the puppet master of all of our media. No, I'm yes. so glad that you've been on there more recently. And, uh, and yeah, well, that's I because hope- you know I actually am Phil Griffin. I, I shapeshift, and <laughs> people think that there is a real Phil Griffin that's the president of MSNBC, but that's really just me, just you know, uh, looking a little more fit than you know. I lefties do. do shapeshift. That's what I hear. Well, it's it's we don't want to give away all our secrets no, because sh- the the right wing yes. goes a little crazy. Uh, it is hard to sit in this chair with my tail, though. I got to say, it's a. Uh- uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and how the headphones fit over your horns. Oh, uh, I know. I love how you design them that yes, way. Yes, right. Well, it's it's a special, 
it's a special thing from hell, <laughs> the hell boutique. But but yes, I hope there are more episodes of Red, White, and Who. Um, and I I think you know to your point that you thought there would be more people blending comedy and journalism. I think that has a lot to say about the field of journalism that folks are scared to have a lighthearted take on something even as kind of serious as healthcare because uh, they don't want to appear to be uh, undermining the topic or they want or they want to appear objective and I love there's lots of comics who've done you know great field work in the vein of Roger and me and the work that you've done although I would say you know still not as ballsy and not as out there and not as openly um confrontational as as you have set the bar at you know so you've got the daily show in the heyday of the daily show field pieces and sam b's done awesome field work um john oliver jordan klepper all these but they're all comics Mm -hmm. but no one and i think has been able to walk that line and so few people have been able to walk that line and almost kind of embrace a, a yellow journalism if you will that's kind of that's just ballsy. And I like that mm. stuff. I don't mean yellow as in we're going to like, you know, expose your family you know, and, and give away your address. I mean it in, in a way that's like we're not going to pretend um, that we're um, that we have to be couth or res- sort of respectful if you are a war criminal. You're right. Or right. if you have right. displaced or if you've poisoned the water in Flint, right. displaced families like, no, we're going to ask you some hard questions. We're going to be unconventional. And, I, and I lo- I've loved that about you. You talk about young me. I mean, I was politicized by the war in Iraq. I moved mm. to New York right before 9-11. And during the lead up to the war in Afghanistan and then the war in Iraq, there were no voices other than yourself mm. who spoke out against that war. Look, I'm, um, I think that humor is a very important vehicle by which to um, uh, impart information is that is that the right way to say that to educate people by um you're right there are those and especially back in my day really when i first started just were mad at me for this isn't a documentary they would just say that this isn't a documentary it um uh, roger me is not a documentary and uh why well because he's goofing around or he's you know making jokes or he's whatever and I always thought that there was this great tradition that dates way back to Jonathan Swift with his modest proposal, all the way through Mark Twain, then into the Marx Brothers, then into Lenny Bruce and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Richard Pryor, um, that, that humor was an incredible way to say something. And that, and then I, I've spoken on, at this on, on past uh, shows about how some of our best comedians are actually very angry people, and that they use their sense of humor to sort of uh, modulate the level of anger, which is intense. Right. But it, it also brings about great humor and great entertainment, actually. Laugh not to cry. Yeah. So, at some point. As a, I can, you're, it's okay if I call you a comedian. It's, I do stand up. Yes. Yes. Okay. You're a comedian. <laughs> I I think of you as a humorist, and um, and I think that you, at some point, where did you decide that it was okay to start introducing either funny into real things that were happening, or 
the real things that were happening were so overbearing that the only way to deal with it was through humor. Oh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I actually think there's something a little more honest about making jokes because especially when you're doing, um, you're informing young folks and you're doing uh, internet content, as we call it. We just make content. It's not actual news. It's just content. Uh, I, I thought that there's lots of quipping. There's lots of uh, a little bit of a sarcastic remark or a little, you know, even even if it's like a, I think all the, I guess all the time I felt like I was holding myself back from making a full-blown joke. And I think there's something almost more honest about saying, I am a comic. I'm going to turn this into a metaphor, you know, um, we're going to call Puerto Rico uh, the Tiffany Trump of America and no one knows where she is and she's been forgotten, you know, right, right. at all times. Like, and that's right. okay. It's like, cause actually it's, it's easier. But where's the voice in your head that says, you know, don't say that. <laughs> it's really, you know, people aren't going to like that. Or there must've been in your early days of comedy, um, people saying to you, Hey, you don't want to go too political or you don't want to do just topical and from, you know, uh, comedy or otherwise you'll be kind of stigmatized with that. I think that's always been in my head. I remember when I started stand up, someone was like, well, do you want to do politics or do you want to do stand up?" And I think that's obviously you just named comics who shown that that is a false, uh, you know, uh, dichotomy or whatever that we, you don't have to choose one or the other that you use humor as a vehicle, but that, the job of the comic is to make laughter. So I've done jokes on stage and I'm sure in Newsbroke that don't land, that aren't funny. We've seen those. And so I failed at that job. But but the real job, I mean, I just wanted to make it harder for myself to actually have to inform and create joy at the same time. Um, but yes, there's been all the times where I'm like, well, you know what you should do, Francesca, is just be political, just be, you know, just be serious, just have an analysis. And then have a separate Twitter account for all of your fart jokes, you know, and like then. Um, but I don't have that many fart jokes, so I would. Do you have a good one right now that you could share? I do. All right. Um, I, I think that I, I talk about reverse racism, the concept of it on stage, that the idea that like anyone who calls anything racist is always called the racist just for pointing it out, which is like right. whoever smelt it, dealt it of race relations. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like bad fart logic too. Like right. it's never whoever smelt it, dealt it. Right. Right. That, and and uh, if anything, when it comes to racism, it's not whoever smelt it, dealt it. It's whoever denied it, supplied it. Whoa. Whoa. That's yeah. so deep. And true. <laughs> true. <laughs> but, but isn't that really sometimes the funniest stuff is really actually the truest yeah. Or the stuff we're afraid to say, maybe, you know, that most people are afraid to go there to, you know, to deal with it. I made a, a joke, not a joke, but I just it was a comment. I was on a show here a week or so ago, and I said, I just want to remind people that two thirds of all white men voted for Trump. That means two out of every three white guys you encounter during the day are Trumpsters. Uh, and, and I said, I, I've got that so ingrained in my head now that whenever I'm walking down the street, you know, and they, I see three white guys coming toward me and I know two of them voted for, I cross over to the other side of the street. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, oh my God, you should see what the right wing, all the sites, all the Twitter nuts, went nuts with that because, you know, he's a racist. He's racist against white people. It's like, I don't even know how to deal with that. Um, but it, it, 
they they took such offense to it they feel so victimized um because the world is changing yeah uh and i know i i i don't have empathy for them but i understand it i understand like when we had the off-year election in 2018 and all those women were elected uh to congress and they see the aocs and the ilhans and the rashidas coming at them that it's like they don't know what side of the street to cross over to i love because i picture that and i just look down at myself and my arms are just outstretched for a hug yeah i imagine rashidas <laughs> and the aocs and the ilhans coming towards me i'm like i'm like a huggy bear you know come come, yeah, to, come me. to me <laughs> um I, well that's what i love about your work and i you know you're kind of this the working class whisperer and i think the working class has been <laughs> it's been mislabeled as as white actually that's right and and we know that the working class is predominantly people of color and um, women and women and they're young yeah that's i've said this over and over again when you think when you hear the words working class or the that working class voter that we need joe biden on the ballot to get no the word <laughs> you're th- what you're saying is uh, lunch bucket joe some angry old white guy is who we've got to win to win next year. And that's completely wrong because the average working class person, if, if you wanted to, you know, kind of say exactly what it is, it's a 30 to 35 year old black woman. Yeah. That's your working class in America. Sure. And, um, and when you hear the media talk about, we got to get Joe Biden to get the, those working class, no, you need to think who's going to inspire a 30-year-old black woman or 35-year-old mm-hmm. Hispanic woman to come out and vote. That's the only way we should be talking about this. Is I mean, this is my mantra this year is just that 70% of the electorate next year is either women, people of color, or young adults between 18 and 35. Yeah. That makes up, or a combination of the three, that makes up 70% of the eligible voters next year. Th- that should be... It's to us, to me, that should be like, we've just been led into, into paradise here. <laughs> like, wow, really? That's who the majority of Americans are? It's yeah. not Lunch Bucket Joe or Opioid Joe? It's no, it's... it's Six, six, pack, six pack Joe, which six pack I was Joe. very sad. I thought Six Pack Joe had an actual six pack, like had some just nice steely abs. <laughs> Turns out he's just going to offer me a course and I'm just, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. like it. That's a, light, a slightly more enlightened six-pack Joe <laughs> yeah. if he's offering you a course. Yeah, he drinks nothing but craft beer. Yeah, you know, right. No, but I think, and this is, you know, this is always the question, um, is when, who, how can we inspire Democratic voters and how can we register new voters? And those voters are those people of color, those women, those folks who have felt disenfranchised and ignored by the political system. And when you invigorate and you center those folks and you get them to the ballot, then then Democrats win. If you're truly scared of Donald Trump being reelected, then those are the people that you should be reaching out to and, and thinking about. Not, let's go to the middle, let's, you know, concern ourselves and reach out to the racists, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, no. Absolutely not. I mean, I don't know if in the early days of Trump, if you ever tried to convince a Trump voter to change their mind, it was so soul-sucking and exhausting. I realized, oh my God, they're lost and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. So I'm just going to let them go because I know that the largest 
political party in this country are the non-voters, the non-voter party, 100 million plus strong. And to win, really win, to crush Trump, we only need a couple few million of the 100 million to come out and vote. Right. Um, but, but In key states. In, yeah. <laughs> because somehow the electoral college is still around. That should be inexcusable that we let that continue after Gore. After Gore won, why didn't the Democratic Party get rid of it? You know, they really don't want to for some reason. I think they're worried that because some someday they think it's going to help the Democrats when the Democrats lose the popular vote, but will s- somehow win the electoral college. I, I don't. I mean, we've yet to see that at all play out. I mean, how many times has the popular vote now gone to a Democrat when a Republican is won? Anyway. Well, twice, twice in 16 years, yeah. 2000, 2016, the Democrats actually won and then lost. I mean, what kind of loser party do you have to be to win an election, but be the loser? How do you win and not be given the keys of the Oval Office? Yeah. Seriously, if I told you I'm going to run in four years, here's my plan, Here, uh, Francesca. I'm, mm. My plan is... I'm going to lose the popular vote. I'm going to do, run a campaign that will guarantee that a majority of the American people will not agree with me, but I will be sitting in the Oval Office for four years. I, I'd sound like I'm crazy. Yeah, I mean, it also sounds crazy when Trump and Republicans say that the impeachment is somehow against the people's will, that the American people support their president when we know that he lost the popular vote. Yes, it's so funny every time they say that. The American w- the will of the American people was they wanted Hillary Clinton or were willing to vote for her at least. Yes, indeed. Whether they wanted her or not, they were willing to vote for her. And that's what matters. And that's, I know, I have to remind uh, all the all the people who get mad at uh, so-called Bernie bros that all the time, that more people actually switch from uh, Hillary to McCain than Bernie to Hillary, right? Um when it was Obama who won the primary and let's just repeat that one more time because this this the facts of this get lost yes that that there were in 2008 um versus uh 2016 in 2008 uh there were more we'll call them democrats um that instead of voting for Obama uh they voted for uh McCain mm-hmm. in 2016 that didn't happen, and and I don't know why Bernie gets this bad rap of, I, I somebody did a, a statistical thing of how many times Hillary went out and and did rallies for Obama mm-hmm. when he ran in '08, and it's like one third as many as Bernie went out and did for Hillary wow. in 2016. Like I get it. It's the same that you're saying that I you understand how a racist world, a racist like worldview is closing in on them and they feel attacked from all sides. You don't have empathy, but you understand how they could feel that way. I'm not saying Hillary voters are racist. I'm just saying, I get if you were so Hillary, if you were so gung-ho Hillary and you're so mad that she lost, just like we all are because we have Trump now, I could see just wanting to kind of kick and scream and blame literally anyone. Now, I don't think that the left should go so far as to repeat right-wing talking points where they're saying, oh, you just want to impeach because you're mad that your candidate lost. I think that sometimes people on the left who were very strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders can get go a little overboard with this like, oh, it's all the sort of centrist Democrats fault. And I disagree with that completely. I think we need far more unity and strategy on the on the Democratic side. How do we do that? 
I think you're seeing it now. I think you can't do that by capitulating. So absolute props to the people who are pushing the center. You know, people like Rashida and AOC and Ilhan and the voters who got them there. Pushing the center toward a... Or pulling the center. Yeah, pulling the center. Pulling, yeah. What toward are we? A, a more um, liberal left progressive enlightenment toward an actual vision toward a progressive vision vision that has things like medicare for all uh and tuition-free public college uh and an actual climate proposal that will stop emissions within 12 years or whatever stop you know uh, Mm -hmm. uh whatever you know whatever that doomsday stat we have going on i'm forgetting it but yes you know that's that's where you've talked about that's where the majority of americans are in this country and Democrats have yet to come up with that vision and that plan until Sanders, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think I think I it, think that's why he's doing so well because first people see that he has that vision. Second, they know that he will be relentless in trying to achieve it. Right. Uh, he will not sell out. He cannot be bought. Everybody kind of knows that, regardless whether you're for Bernie or not. Yeah. Right. That Bernie <laughs> cannot be bought. Bernie's his own person, and he's going to go down his own path. I have to tell you this. The the best thing I heard in the 2016 election cycle was two people talking in a lobby uh, around, I think maybe we were outside of the DNC or the Democratic National Convention. I can't remember exactly where we were. But anyway, and a guy says to this other guy, they're clearly, you know, I think they're Clinton supporters at the time. This is before Bernie drops out. And the guy goes, Bernie Sanders supporters are just more political. <laughs> and it was so it was so perfect. Yeah. Because it was so blase and like detached and yet true and just like saying they're more political it just means they're more engaged, they're more passionate, they care more. And I think those are wonderful qualities to have when you've got a you know a, a presidential candidate a campaign. And you've seen that Sanders, you know, Sharpton said it the other night on Morning Joe or the other morning on Morning Joe. That, that it's, it's night for people like us who go to bed <laughs> after the sun comes up. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Uh, he said that Bernie is a transformative candidate. And he absolutely is because what happened when Trump was actually elected president? Folks joined Democratic Socialists of America. Folks supported candidates like AOC folks became politicized and by Bernie's run by Trump's win um, people didn't sort of go back into the woodwork and I think and this is sort of the lesson I take from Obama is that you know when Obama was elected he kind of cut the ladder the the movement ladder out from under him and surrounded himself with a lot of sort of tried and true democratic establishment advisors and such um and was like thank you movement that got me elected I'm good from here and we don't want that because there right. was no single payer option in Obamacare right right and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that some of the movements and some of the people who pulled really hard for him um had kind of got their back, you know, had a back turn on them. Um, and I think it's the movement that's going to hold Sanders accountable for better or worse, right? You yeah. know, I think that some of that, some folks are going to be angry with him not doing things soon enough if he is the president. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I think he would say that's fine. Sure. I think he would accept expect us to be on him yeah. to get these things done that we want to get done and get them done now. 
and um because i think you're right about this movement i i remember with the campaign for obama they were so tuned into digital media and social media as it would you know didn't really mm-hmm. exist on the level in 2008 that it does now but they understood it and i couldn't believe it after he was elected all those numbers they had all those text numbers all that information you never heard from them again you never heard from obama you know 6 months into office saying hey i need your help everybody yeah we've got to get real universal health care not these half measures that i'm having to fight for and organize the American public to demand the things that never happened. And so after eight years of Obama, the minimum wage is still $7 and 25 cents an hour. The whole Flint poisoning, water poisoning takes place under his watch and does nothing about it. What a chilling moment of your last documentary. My God. Well, when he went to Flint and told people the water was fine now and, and then he fake drank the water. It was, it was bad. Yeah, it was, it was, it was honestly, you know, because I love Obama, but it was really hard to put that in there. But but because I'm of Flint, I that that day that he did that in that gymnasium where, you know, three quarters of the audience is African-American, it was like a knife in the heart of the mm-hmm. people there. They mm-hmm. couldn't believe that this man um, is doing this to us. Yeah. But in terms of healthcare. That's what this special Red, White and Who is all about. The first special just deals with healthcare, And we go to three different states. And this is almost a decade after the ACA has been passed. Correct. And almost a decade, a decade since Sicko came out. Yeah. Well, Sicko came out in in 07. Oh, okay. So. A year before Obama. um, And this was my movie about health insurance companies, healthcare. And it's really about not the people that don't have health care, but the people who have health insurance. And it's a it's a bunch of BS because if you do get sick, if you do have something happen to you, the health insurance, because it's a private profit-making company, will do everything they can to deny as much help for you as possible because that's the only way they make a profit. Right. But, yeah, so that so that came out in 07. And, and um, when it came out, yeah. I thought, oh, we're solving this. Yeah. Oh, this, this is done. Like... All you need is a doc and then you solve the problem. But like I called you the Nostradamus and I sincerely believe that, you know, you saw that Trump was going to be elected. You've you've touched on issues years before everyone else. And so when I went to make this special, I was like, how do I not repeat sicko? Right. And how that's sweet that you would say that. But 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 I need 100 people repeating or doing your own version of it because we're not there. It, it kills me that 10, well, this would be now, we're almost 13 years after sicko, um, that that we're, we don't have what we should have. We don't have, we don't have what the Canadians have. Damn it. That is just wrong. It's On s- just so many levels, that's wrong. Justin Trudeau. I'm so glad that blackface scandal came out. Just take him down a few pegs. Yes, right. And the Stanley Cup is ours, not theirs. Yeah. So, but, but, ser- <laughs> but seriously, all I want is what the Canadians have. Can we just have that? I want their unlocked doors. Yes, like, right. Like throwback to Bowling for Columbine, but uh, that was my favorite part. Just, I, I just want their unlocked doors. Yes. I want their health care and their unlocked doors. So I, in the movie, just to explain if you haven't seen it, I, 
I wanted to test a theory, which is the reason Canadians don't shoot each other as much as we do, is they don't live in fear. They don't have this constant fear in their head. It's not a real fear. We have we have fake fear in our heads, and we need to have a whole bunch of guns in the house. No, actually, you're making your life less safe by having these guns. So I wanted to test. I had a theory. I didn't know if it was true that I could go into a major city in the, quote, inner city of Toronto in this case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the evening when they would be awake, uh, just walk up and open doors and walk in and I will not be shot. And I swipe that movie took three years to make. I, so I waited to the last month to shoot that scene. Cause I was so frightened that of, cause my, my American head, you do not open a door. Well, I was just going to say, why didn't you do the same thing in Kansas? Because I'd be dead. <laughs> why I want to? I don't, I don't have a death wish. Yeah, but, even, but you know, it's just it's like as a scientific experiment. You know, it's not actually empirical because you didn't do that. So, okay, all right, that is true. That is true. When you and I collab, mm-hmm. we are trying to open every door. <laughs> all right, you go first. <laughs> you be human shield. Um, uh, you be the human shield, and I'll be wearing some Kevlar. <laughs> But uh, well, so I wanted to just about the special. I was like, how do we, you know, how do we make this a little bit lighthearted? So the first thing I was like, I want to find someone with one of the most dangerous and yet the most American jobs out there. So I spoke to a cowboy. That's the very first scene is me going to Texas where there are four million uninsured people still Mm. where the GOP legislators refuse to expand Medicaid still, Mm. uh, which would give uh millions of people healthcare. I don't know. I think it's almost 5 million people healthcare. Mm, mm. Uh, And I spoke to a guy who is a rodeo cowboy. And I said, can you think of anything who doesn't have health insurance? And I said, do you think, can you think of anything more American than being a cowboy? And he said, no. And I said, well, wouldn't you say then that it's un-American to not give a cowboy health insurance? And he was like, I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) But you know, it's that moment. It's like, mm-hmm. here's this guy who, and in a funny way, his life is a metaphor for all Americans where he says being a cowboy is is not a question of if you're going to get hurt, but when. Right. And that's the same thing with all Americans that's in healthcare. That's true for everybody listening to this podcast right now. You will get sick. And you or someone in your family will get really sick and come down with something. And what, you know... At that moment, you're suddenly going to realize, geez, wouldn't it be nice to be Canadian? <laughs> wouldn't, it, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have real health insurance? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, this year I'm a freelancer and I'm looking at my uh, premiums for under the ACA. You know, you got your gold, bronze, platinum is the copper, top one. T- yeah, titanium. Right. <laughs> I don't know. There's just right. like dirt. Yeah. It's like what a plan are you under? Oh, I don't care. I got the dirt plan. <laughs> yeah. What does what does dirt plan cover? It's got a fifteen thousand dollar deductible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's more than that, but it's rough. You know, I I called and it's all based on your projected income. Well, if you're doing if you're a documentary filmmaker, if you're you know trying to get grants for films, you don't know how much you're going to make next year. Right. So it's all you know. It's sort of we get screwed, right? A lot of people get screwed, but I'm just talking about people who are going on the marketplace. So I called them in and they also said, oh, also your your premium's going up $200 next year. For what? Like what's, 
Mm. How, what is the inflation rate on like a urine test? You know, really like what? Right. There's a, I'm a healthy person. Like what, where is, you know, it's, it's the most non-transparent industry in a country that prides itself on knowing the price, getting a better deal, capitalism, 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 consumerism. Wouldn't we see signs that, I feel like you had a, a bit like this in, in Sicko, but it's like, wouldn't we see signs for like a better deal on a, you know, gallbladder surgery or a better deal? You know, wouldn't they tr be trying to compete with one another? You would think so in a country that calls itself capitalist and believes in the free enterprise system and competition and all this. But that's the big lie too. The people, the capitalists, who just wax on about how important capitalism is, they're the least believers of it. People believe in capitalism. The thing they want, the thing they love the most is if they could be the only, you know, lawnmower company, if they could be the only airline, if they could be the only whatever, they wanna they wanna buy out, they wanna merge, they wanna kill and crush the competition. They wanna live in a world with no competition. They they actually they want the old Soviet style. Sure. Where there's only one car company. Yeah, I mean, we talk so much trash on China, but actually their model is, I think, what we kind of aspire to, which is this like totalitarianism and capitalism together. Yes. And we're not super far off from that. What's so bizarre about the healthcare industry is that we don't know prices, which is I was just going to, you know, where I was headed with that is. Whereas everything else we know what the price is, this is the one thing where we can't know. You know, I was in a doctor's office and they were like, oh, well, we could give you, um, I forgot what test I was doing, but essentially I was like, well, how much is this other test, which is a better test? And I've talked to the, uh, someone in Utah, they didn't know the price. I talked to someone in Utah and he was like, he's got uh, chronic kidney stones. He doesn't know what's causing them. He's in excruciating pain. He doesn't want to take opioids because they're all just saying, or opiates, they're just saying, take opiates, um, you know, get on Oxycontin. He doesn't want to go on Oxycontin. And he couldn't afford a CT scan, which would have helped him understand the root cause of, of mm. his uh, gallstones or his right. kidney stones, excuse me. Right. Instead, he did an x-ray, which was like, I think maybe uh, $50 <clears throat> versus $500. Right. Now we, and, and these are the things we're going for whatever, uh, he didn't know how much cheaper it was gonna be, but we're just, we are selling our own health short. People are going bankrupt. The people that I spoke with, the, like the people that you've spoken with, things have not changed much in 10 years or 12 years, you know, since sicko. It's still the, healthcare is still the number one cause of bankruptcy. Yeah. Still, after Obamacare. So this is, this is an issue that really has you going. I mean, you're really, and. And what was fascinating is learning about Medicaid and Medicare. Mm -hmm. People, I talked to Republican voters who love Medicare. They said the only the only reason they're alive is because of Medicare. Mm -hmm. And then I asked, what do you think about, you know, suggestions to cut Medicare and Medicaid as we know GOP legislators have wanted to do for eons. Uh, and they're like, no, no, we, we don't, we don't support that. Mm. I don't like that. So they like socialized medicine. So it turns out they like socialized. If medicine, it's for them, if it's for them. Right. The other thing that about Medicare and Medicaid, that's really interesting is that, that is government subsidized and government funded healthcare, right? It's for low income people, people with disabilities. Expanded Medicaid is for low income, um, uh, not just children, but adults. Mm -hmm. And then Medicare, of course, for the elderly or over 65, not that elderly. But those are the priciest 
consumers of healthcare. The most expensive, if we're looking strictly at budget, right? The most expensive people right. to buy, to, to support on healthcare, right. uh, their healthcare needs, and the taxpayer is paying for them. Now, I support that because I do believe in the common good and I support you know Medicare and Medicaid, but from a fiscal perspective, we're allowing the private healthcare insur- the private insurance industry to get all the healthy people. They have a lockdown on the, the market of healthy people, meaning people who are not who are under the age of 65, uh, who, who uh, are able-bodied young folks, right? They get to insure all those people who arguably are not nearly as expensive as the people who are disabled or the people who are elderly. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So they're not yeah, no, only I, ripping us off, they're getting a good deal on the American taxpayer. Shouldn't it be reversed? Shouldn't the private sector have to cover the more expensive people? And does that, you know what I'm saying? Here's, what, here's how I take what you're saying. Um, why are we spending so much on old people? I mean, seriously, first of all, all anybody who's a parent, you want to take care of your kids first. So the youth should be protected first. The youth should be taken care of. The youth should, should not have to pay these outrageous uh, premiums or uh, deductibles right. or whatever. And older people, you know, if you've lived a good life, uh, you'll do okay. And if you haven't, well, tough. It's <laughs> Actually, this is how, you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but how I honestly feel is because they hate socialism and socialized medicine and socialize whatever as long as it's, if it's for them it's good i think if you go in the voting booth and you vote republican if you vote for trump next year there should be a little ding that goes off that says you've just been cut off from medicare Oof. you can't because why why should you get medicare if you have voted to say i don't want uh anybody in office that's going to give people universal health care well, why should you have it then sure you shouldn't so I know this doesn't sound very, it doesn't. And then a, a trap door. And then, yes. and then a, and then a reeducation camp on like yes. ra- anti-racism. Okay. So the trap We're door. We're going full reeducation okay, I'm, camp. I'm for everything you just said. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm for nonviolence. So in sure. the trap door, I want them to fall into pillows. Oh yeah. All right. They fall into pillows. Then there's a slide and the slide takes them to the reeducation camp yeah. where they learn how not to be a bigot. It's mostly, know. it's just, yeah. Where, where they are, where men are forced to watch videos of men kissing yeah. for like hours at a time to sort of help them. It's like a, a Clockwork Orange, except all they're watching is like the show Blackish, and they're like, yeah, ah, exactly, right? Or, <clears throat> or, and only they only encounter during the day transgender people. Um, they have to help me out here in the reeducation camp. Oh yeah. What else? What else? Uh, are there classes? Do they have to learn? They, okay, no, well, mean, they, have, they have to learn how to read and write if they don't already. Yes, That's, have to learn how to read and write. And then they have to read. They have to read. They have to actually read. You, I don't care if it's just the sports section. You have to read. Yeah, Dave Zirin has some great books out there. There you go. I mean, this is the thing, though. It makes me think about the fact that actually college-educated people voted for Trump. College-educated white men. That is true. Yeah. Um, that doesn't get said. People don't know that. And that Hillary actually got the lower uh, educated, uh, the less, I should say, the less the people that don't have well, college degrees, people like me that don't have college degrees. <laughs> I mean, and I think that's it's important to remember. I think that, you know, I, I it's hard to know what to do with these folks. I think my my biggest thing 
They're trolls. Trump is the troll king. His followers are all trolls. What do you do with trolls? You have to, you basically have to not feed them. You kind of have to ignore them. They are not your demographic to go after, number one. You have to actually create a movement. You've got to create a vision that is bigger than them so that the troll eventually, you know, sees the light, turns to stone. We're all good. <laughs> how do you, as a comedian though, how do you, how do you not, how do you ignore Trump? Because it's a treasure trove of comedy. But on the other hand, I think now he's at a point where, um, well, two things. One, it's not funny anymore. Right. But number two, he is so good at what he does. His own performance art for his crowd. If you watch the rallies, if you can stay and watching it, he does this prancing back and forth across the stage. He does his mic drops. He does all this stuff that I, that, and they're eating it up. They, for them, this is, this is like, this is their carrot top. This is their, uh, you know, um, who's the guy? That- he was never supposed to win. He was supposed to have a residency in Vegas where people can just Correct. go and be racist and say the things and just not that they, they're not supposed to say and, you know, have some hot dogs and some shrimp and go home. Right. Watch Trump. Say the lines with him. Build the wall. Do you watch his rallies? Do you watch? Do do you pay? I, I or are you trying to just block it all out? No, I I actually do. I watch his rallies. I read his Twitter feed. So then, and as a comedian, then how are how is this working for you? It's hard because when how do you make fun of someone who is a walking satire? Like how right. does this? How do you out satire satire? You can't out satire yeah. satire like. Yeah. Uh, and and when you get on stage and you talk to crowds, the last thing people want to think about is Trump. Right. Because how many years of our lives, all of our lives, has he taken? Mm. Like, personally, mm. if he ever leaves the White House, I want that time back. Yeah. Like, I want, when I'm, you know, 87 or, I don't know, 95, whenever I die, I want someone to be like, Francesca? And then just hand me a giant like clock, which is all the time I got back wasted thinking about Trump and talking about Trump, which I think is about four and a half years at this point. Right. Five and a half. You have to count the campaign. You got to yeah. count the campaign. And yeah. like anytime I randomly caught The Apprentice, oh, even, even a trailer. True. True. Okay. That's at least six or seven years. Yeah, plus Home Alone 2 and the scene that was deleted in Canada. Right. I have saw that movie maybe five times. That's a, at least a minute. But again, shouldn't the Canadians just admit, of course, they cut him out. It's I know everyone's like, so scared to just say it. Why? Why not say it? it? Literally, the scene is not even 15 seconds. If they were cutting for time because they run commercials. OK, I get that. Yes, I know that I, my movies are on TV. They cut things so they can have commercials. But the scene with Trump is just 15 seconds. Right. And you know what's so great? If you ever watch that scene. Um, Macaulay Culkin stops and asks him where something is. He's yeah. at the Plaza Hotel, which Trump owned at the time. And Trump just says, oh, it's down there and around the corner. And Macaulay says, thanks. That's the whole scene. And then then Trump walks away. And I know as a director, I can tell you, he did not do what the director told him to do. He turns around because he wanted more camera time. And he stands there. And and clearly, it's just John Hughes, right? Uh, hold on. I think, yeah. Um if I have that wrong, um, somebody at him, 
yes, <laughs> at me on Twitter and take me to task. Um, but Trump just stands there trying to get another four seconds of camera time. It's so obvious that he's such a, you know, uh, oh, 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 it's Chris Columbus. Oh, yeah. Of course. All right. Uh, Chris, if you're listening, um, I'm, I apologize for that. But, you know, but he worked with John Hughes. He's everybody loved John Hughes. Yeah. Might no as well long, be. No longer yeah. with us. So I'm, you, I, yeah. I just was waiting for him to like lash out against the pigeon lady, you know, like they cut my scene. But pigeon lady who's, you know, let's be honest, a two. She's still in the movie. She's great. Uh, pigeon ladies. <laughs> I forgot the actress's name. <laughs> Michael, I've got questions for you. Oh, oh OK. Because um, I, I watched Sicko again for like, I don't know what time. And I cried again. Uh, I, in my in my special, I tried to not go super heavy. We tried to sort of keep it a little bit light. You know, we didn't get the saddest of the saddest stories. We didn't talk to anyone who had a loved one who died. Um, but I, the part that I was fascinated by was was when you go into Hillary and you talk about Clinton and how this was, you know, her main task as first lady, which is not common, would was to actually tackle legislation around healthcare reform. Um, and reining in some of these costs. And this is however many years ago, you know, 25 years ago. And like, why do you think that Hillary in 2016, why do you think she stopped evolving on this issue on healthcare? Why do you think she wasn't open to the idea of a universal Medicare for all system, even though she was the one who brought reform into the public eye? I think Hillary uh, Clinton... I think, frankly, is one of the most tragic figures of the 20th century and early 21st century. Um, she, when she started out, let me. I mean, for those who don't know this, and for the 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 super left who aren't going to like me saying anything positive about Hillary, I'm sorry, but um, you know, I followed her um, since. Well, first of all, she worked on the impeachment committee to impeach Richard Nixon. You know, she. She grew up in suburban Chicago in a Republican family, goes to um, um, Wellesley yeah. in her, her freshman year, still a Republican, gets elected the head of the young Republicans. And within a year, and the Vietnam War is going on at this time, within a year, she flips like once out of the house, once away from the conservative suburbs of Chicago, she's, she's out east. And she sees the error of all of that, and she flips like a like a solid college student. That is, you yes. know, freshman fifteen, <clears throat> flip on all the political beliefs your parents taught you. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly right. And we're talking now. This is, you know, late sixties. So the the modern day feminist movement is really just beginning. It hasn't really picked up full steam like it did around nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. 71 but so she's now she's a hardcore feminist she's against the war she's brilliant and then um, she meets an idiot okay well now this is where you have to take over because this is this is as i observe um how many women i've seen in my lifetime be <laughs> the only thing that crushed them was being with the wrong guy i'm talking about the heterosexual women that they that in in choosing incorrectly the impact uh that it had and especially on her so but still 
You know, she Don't marries worry. him. In the year 2020, no woman is making a bad choice. No, I believe this about is true. What guy to be with or marry? We are in. We're we are all in, making solid choices. Yes. No, no, that's not just a joke. I believe this is happening. I, I believe. I, I believe people are making solid choices to be with the right cat. And I you know, listen. I support. I support feline company over bad male company any day. Um, and I listen. I, the white supremacist Richard Spencer was like, women are just spending evenings alone with their cats i'm like that's not an evening alone that's an evening well accompanied <laughs> me and my cat will watch maddow right glass, of, glass, of, wine, glass of wine you know it's beautiful i'll read a little bit read a little <laughs> what there is nothing wrong with that scenario i have off i have seriously wondered in in recent times that why i mean what do women how does having a man in the house enhance <laughs> your life and listen i'm not a self-hating guy i'm just saying what are we useful for now i mean we used to we used to be needed shelving yes shelving putting up or getting or getting something off the top shelf or a little taller or doing like oh i forgot an onion can you go to the store like that is that's all my boyfriend does yeah we're good for that yeah but you don't but actually you don't need us to get something off the top shelf because they've invented the portable aluminum stepladder which is like weighs two pounds. Yeah. You can carry it anywhere. You can get up there. This you, is like a segment on Fox and Friends. <laughs> you know, this portable aluminum yeah. step stool is just making men obsolete. What right. do they think of next? They're like Who yeah. invented in, in vitro fertilization? <laughs> they used to need us to keep the species going. Now they only need a few of us. The rest of us, they're gonna, if women take over, they're going to they're gonna take most of us and put us in a large, large pen out in Utah in the <laughs> desert somewhere. And we'll like it. Sure. I don't mind eating out of a trough. That's fine. Women will just be home with their cats and their <laughs> glass of wine and a good book. Um, it is. I absolutely agree with you that Hillary Clinton is a very tragic figure in American politics. I think she's one of the I mean, almost more fascinating than Obama. Right. Like I want both of their like just frontline Biog- Frontline, I think, has done something on Hillary. But like, you know, I, I really I, I agree with you because from what I've read, it is that moment where Bill saw a almost competition mm-hmm. and was like, oh, no, I know. I know I can get any woman in the school. I can't do a bill. No, that's <laughs> bill pretty thing, good. That's pretty good. Thank you. Um, You know, he knew he could like actually, you know, marry anyone. But he saw competition in her and was like, let me just twist the little cap on that bottle mm-hmm. before any of the sodas, you know, mm-hmm. fizzes out. Just and, gonna, and I will absorb the competition. Yes. Drink that soda. I will, I will take from her that which I don't have. And, of, and, and, and actually, ironically, in a time when a lot of women were leaving behind the men that they had married and had kids with and cooked the roast for every evening, um, this power couple did the opposite. And I think it was the power that made it seem like it didn't follow those traditional gender um, roles, but it did. She had the right idea about healthcare. I mean, we're talking almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Had, had she succeeded, but of course she was berated and put down. What are you letting this woman? She's the first lady. She's supposed to be, you know, showing us the flowers in the, in the Rose garden. Mm-hmm. Why her and, Christmas trees dripping with blood, <laughs> as Melania would say. Yeah, but it's like uh, we didn't get it. She she didn't succeed, and then you couldn't talk about healthcare for at least the next twenty years. 
Um, and we all lost as, as a result of that. When she came, when she then ran on her own, she had a chance to go back into, into that, that magic, you know, chest, that box of hers where they had all her great ideas, mm-hmm. pull out that idea and, and say, this is it. This is what I'm going to do as president of the United States. She couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. By that time, too, she had taken money uh, from the healthcare industry and all that. And she right. was just, she did what everybody knows. Again, sorry to remind people of this, but Bernie will never do this. We already know this. We know that he will not sell out and, and that he can't be bought. And he can also walk this line of being respectful to the ACA and what Obama was able to accomplish but push beyond that. I mean, I, I think that Democrats, we put ourselves in this position where just because we're defending Obamacare from the right, which we are, you know, they are somehow trying to still repeal and replace, even though they're the only ones who are going to get replaced if they go with that. Um, it doesn't mean we have to not push for something more and come into the 21st century and or, you know, in the, we're going to be in the year 2020 and people are still dying because they don't have they can't pay for their health care. And these are people with plans. So one of the best stories that we went into for the special was here in New York. There is something called the New York Health Act, which is Medicare for all, but on a statewide level. There is a young woman who a young woman. There's a she's, she's a mom. There's a woman who uh, is for the New York Health Act. And the reason she's for it is because her son, when he was three, had an autoimmune dis- disorder, disease, had to be hospitalized spent 15 months in three different hospitals. And she said, even though my husband and I had health insurance, between the billing, the deductibles, the in and out of hospitals where people uh, wouldn't take my insurance, the hospital would take my insurance, but uh, my the doctor in the hospital wouldn't take my insurance. She said, we just need to simplify it. We need to simplify it right now. Cause even though I affor- afforded this, my son is still alive. I'm afraid my my husband can't lose his job because then he'll lose our health care. Um, I had to quit my job just to fully take care of my son and navigate the entire bureaucracy. She asked for an audit for all the bills that she got, mm. right? Because billing mistakes are happening left and right. That's right. So this is someone, again, with resources, well-educated, has insurance, who is for a Medicare for All plan. I'm interested in whether or not it could only happen on a statewide level first as almost this model, like, okay, if it happens in New York, which it does stand a chance at, um, now that the the legislature in New York is fully Democrat, it never was before, it hasn't been in years. This The the Health Act was introduced, I think, in the early 90s. If we, if we see the model succeed in one state, is that the way to go and then make it national? Or is the way to go just top down, make it national from and fight, fight like hell for it? I think either way works. I think um, <clears throat> when abortion was illegal, California and New York made it legal and it was legal in these two states uh, for three years before Roe v. Wade. Right. I think that had an impact on the Supreme Court where they they saw that God did not come down and kill all the heathens who made abortion legal. Um, they, they saw that fertilized eggs were not actual human beings. They were fertilized eggs. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do the electric slide. Um, could not. No. Zygotes are so bad at that. No. And fertilized eggs are horrible when they take an SAT. I mean, there's a whole list of things that fertilized eggs are just not very good at. But um, 
Yes, I think either way can work. Yeah. I want to ask you, though, before we um, uh, come to, to the end of this, so just your, I just want to hear what your first thoughts are that come into your head, okay, uh, when I say certain names or, or certain words. Oh, okay? no. Are you okay with this? Yeah. It's not really the game show part of our, of our endeavor here, but it, it sort of is. There is no prize at the end of it, so. I can't take this recorder with me? Oh, my me. God. I could never let that go. No. No, I, I, I recorded, oh my God, I would, I, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm in fourth I'm gonna grade. I'm going to find something to steal. Uh, Don't so, you worry. Something You'll take something from the podcast yeah. room here. It'll just be an aux cord. And you'll be like, hey, where'd that aux cord go? Take Basil over here, actually. <laughs> He's like. Thanks, you, Basil. Right? You got nothing to do today. I'm for the taking. No. <laughs> Basil's our, our producer extraordinaire um, and does many, wears many hats uh, here. Um. Mitch McConnell. Oh. Mm. Like gobble crust. <laughs> like, you know, this just the lower chin. I just want to know what he hides in his like lower chin fat area. Mm. It's got to be good. Mass incarceration. Uh, hashtag sad. 79 cents on the dollar. An abomination. It's still... Could you believe that that still exists? And I mean, even less if you're black or Latino. Yeah. It. Do you think that there's something in the last decade that we maybe, maybe we just got rid of it and it's gone now? Maybe in this decade we won't have to deal with, I mean, we'll always have to deal with certain things, but mm -hmm. like something got better. Something got, something just went away and it, and it, 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 it just made you happy that, Oh, you know what? It is a little bit better now. You know, it's, we don't, we don't have Les Moonves and um, Matt Lauer and <laughs> go down the whole list. Like, wow, they are really gone and they are not coming back. They'll try. They'll definitely try to come back. They will. They um, will. They're not. I mean, they'll, they're, they're going to start like their Predator Podcast Network. It'll be a whole thing. <laughs> Uh, I know that's I think that's the if I had any superpower, it'd be the ability to just disappear people, not violently nor just Bob, just like turn them off, just like a little like, bloop, you know, um, we'll nationalize their assets. Mm. Uh, that'll go back to the people, of course, mm, that's good. Um, obviously to the settlements and everything like that. But I don't wish them any harm. They have it's not it's not death and it's not living on like some Caribbean island. It's just, boop, you know, because like Trump. The idea that he has to, he's going to be around and his whole family is going to be around forever. Right. For my entire life, the rest of our lives. That's right. Eric and Don are not going to go away, even though Trump may be gone. Uh, will you come back on uh, and, and do this again with me? And, uh, you know, I hope your show gets picked up uh, by you. MSNBC. What do you mean? I hope I am the puppet master. <laughs> I is NBC. <laughs> you shall be picked up. <laughs> I will come back anytime, Michael. Okay, thank you. And in the meantime, uh, you can go if you go back and look at if you go on the on demand there on MSNBC, you can find uh, Red, White, and Who uh, that uh, uh, that Francesca did um, a couple weeks ago, and um, and also Newsbroke. How can people see Newsbroke? Do you have to have AG, AJ uh, Al Jazeera on? No, your cable? you just go. You just have to have YouTube. You got to have the World Wide Web. Okay. So go to YouTube. That's the WWW, mm -hmm. World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. Not okay. the wrestling kind. Okay, all right. The WWW. So if you have that, just go on and you type in. 
YouTube slash AJ Plus, and you'll find it there. Or uh, follow me at Franny Fio on Twitter and Instagram. Episodes are there. Um, Spell Franny Fio so people know on Instagram because you really should follow uh, uh, Francesca on Instagram. Yeah, F R A N I F I O. My name is way too long to be a handle. Yeah, Franny. You can barely say hi, I Francesca Fiorentini. No, it's it's Franny Fio. Okay, uh, and and her. Her a show on AJ Plus is News Broke. I encourage you uh, to watch it. And more voices like yours. That's what I want right now. It's you that's paved the way, Michael. Thank you so no, much no, for everything no. you've well, done. That's nice of you to say, but I think I think that this is one of the good things that's happening right now. And and to have, you know, sort of really I thought I said to Basil, I said, you know, we we have the AOC of comedy uh, coming in here today. So this is like this I've is gotten a, a couple laughs out of you, but yeah. Thank you. No, it's true it's true. And uh um and and I am optimistic about this coming year and the decade, but it won't happen on its own. Everybody off the bench, everybody in the pool. Um otherwise <laughs> ain't gonna happen. So that's exactly right. I mean, honestly, like the prize for if Bernie becomes the nominee and if he happens to actually win the presidency, the prize for all that is just more work. Oh, yeah. The, the movement will will the day after the inauguration. Well, if we have President Sanders, it is going to require all of us because he is going to be fought tooth and nail by the powers that be that don't want to. You know, when I hear people say things like, uh, um, you know, I, I don't want to vote for Bernie because uh, he can't win. He can't win. He won't beat Trump. You know what? I know what they're really saying is they're worried that actually he will win. When yeah. people say that, they're worried that he can beat Trump. And then they're going to have to get involved. And be like, ugh, I just well, wanted to wait for my Amazon Prime package. You can get your package, you can binge on Netflix, and you can get off your butt and be a citizen of this country. People, when I get interviewed on things and they say, oh, Michael Moore, he's a filmmaker and an activist. And, and I said, well, wait a minute, don't say activist because I'm a citizen of a democracy. That implies I'm an activist. We're all activists. If you're not active, there's no democracy. Yep. It's over. So let's all uh, get involved. Thank you for your role in this, Francesca. And um, and thank you to those of you who are listening uh, to Rumble uh, with Michael Moore. I am, of course, Michael Moore. And uh, please subscribe to this podcast. It's free. And um, um, I'll be back at you in the next uh, day or two. So uh, thanks for listening. And thank you. Thank you, Michael. Sick of waiting and praying and hoping. Sick of the cold whispered dreams and not knowing. Sick of the strength that it takes to keep going Sick as I'm losing this fight and it's showing 